0: Uh, But how about we pray as we come before God and ask for his help tonight. Loving Father, we do ask that you'll help each and every one of us here to uh, engage with your word, to understand what you're saying, and we pray for encouragement uh, to trust you and to put your will into practice. Amen. Now, we've managed to fit Daniel 1 onto one side of the printed page. I tell you, we can't fit Daniel 2 onto one side of a printed page. And when we come to the sermon where we're going to go from chapters 10, 11 and 12 on the one week, we'll have no chance. So I want to encourage you to start, here's a shot, right, bringing Bibles to church. Um, if, if you've got a Bible uh, or if you have it on your device, uh, we're not going to be printing it all the weeks over this series. So you'll benefit from having something to look at, right? don't want you just to hear what I say but to be reading it and looking at what we've got here. Now, one of the things uh, about Daniel is it's a good case study of looking at a man who follows God in a world that doesn't. And there's a lot of pressure on Daniel to conform. We've actually called this series Against the Flow, and uh, the kids out there, they're, they're gonna be amongst other things, making these little craft things, where a fish that's going with the flow turns itself around to swim the other direction. And that's what we're going to see with Daniel and his three friends. And there's a great deal of pressure to conform for Daniel. And that, I think, makes it helpful for us because we've probably also felt the pressure to conform. I mean, in silly ways, like you look back through uh, the decades and with music and fashion and hair and everything, there is a a conforming in behaviour. Uh, We look back at the 1980s, or at least I do, at my wedding photos and so on, and kind of cringe at certain things. And who would have known that I was before my time having a mullet back then? Um, But of course I wouldn't be able to go to heritage school anymore, um, and probably with good reason. Um, We have forms and fashion that we're kind of swept along with, just wanting to be like everybody else. Uh, Sometimes it's the the thing of the the media, sometimes it's the things of our education, it's certainly the things that we buy, the gadgets and things that we must have. But there can be stronger pressure on us to be like those around us. And I mentioned a book before, this book called The Secular Creed. Um, And Rebecca McLaughlin in this book addresses what she calls five secular creeds and helps us to think about how we respond to them as christians you'll have heard these creeds before let me read them to you black lives matter love is love gay rights are civil rights women's rights are human rights transgender women are women now there are other creeds as well but just by hearing those you'll probably tap into the reality that we live in a society that says this is truth Get on board with it. Whatever we think of the different nuances associated with different ideologies and different practices and different religions and different worldviews, there is a tide that's going in a particular direction. And we need to think about whether or not we flow with that tide or whether we paddle hard against it. And Daniel and his three friends are coming into a situation where there is a tide that is massively against where they've been. They have to learn a new language for starters. A new culture as part of that. They are brought into a society that is so different to the one that they grew up in. There are different gods, it's a different religion. And there is the pressures that come upon these four men in particular because they stand out and they get opportunity. They have incredible opportunity for power and influence, to exercise authority and political control. They have privilege, they have power, they have wealth. And we need to think how they respond when the pressures of the tide of the culture and the opportunities that come by being right at the heart of that culture come into their world. I think it's very helpful. Now, a little bit of background, first of all. Um, You'll notice in the handout there that I've got some dates and I've got a diagram. And hopefully this will give you a little window into what we're dealing with, both historically and geographically. First of all, these events can be read about if you read through the book of 2 Kings or 2 Chronicles, right at the end. In fact, it would be a great exercise just to read from, say, 2 Kings 20 right through to the end which is about six chapters and you'll see various kings what happens to them you'll see the babylonians you'll hear about the egyptians and the assyrians and you'll get the historical circumstance that we see here with daniel because what takes place in 605 bc is that this new empire the babylonians effectively get world domination or at least their part of the world Uh, The Babylonians overthrow the Egyptians and the Assyrians to take control of the Middle East. And Judah, you see, is that little dot that's caught up in the middle. So whatever's going on with the Assyrians affects Judah. Whatever's going on with the Egyptians affects the people of God. Whatever happens with the Assyrians has an impact on Judah and Jerusalem and the people of Israel. And we can read in 605 BC that Babylon takes control. They overthrow Egypt and Assyria, and they then begin to take captive key Israelites and key possessions of the Israelites back into Babylon. That's about 605. Nebuchadnezzar becomes more and more powerful And in 597 BC he has another go and it's a serious go this time he destroys the temple in Jerusalem and he takes the treasures from the temple and they were massive the the temple treasures that were accumulated under David and Solomon were an absolute kind of trillion-dollar treasury and Judah had been stupid enough to let envoys from Babylon many years before go and have a look at it You can imagine them putting little note when we invite Judah don't forget the temple And they start to take it. In fact, they destroy it and they take just about everything and in 597, 10,000 people from Judah are deported to Babylon amongst them 7,000 fighting men There are the skilled people. There's the artisans and basically all the people of influence are then taken away from Judah. Judah is effectively no more. And then the final wrap-up, 10 years later, they come back for another go. Jerusalem's destroyed. The rest of the people are taken into captivity. The walls are pulled down and the rest of the temple uh, proceeds are taken back to the gods of Babylon. Now... This is a dreadful situation for Israel. Somebody uh, commented that it's pretty much two and a half thousand years between when, when Judah existed as a state to post-Second World War when Israel, again, uh, is a state. But it's not just geography and history that's going on here. This is a massive crisis of faith for Israel. You see, they were told that God dwelt in a special place called the temple, and the temple is raised to the ground. They've been told to King David that one of David's descendants would sit on the throne, ruling over the kingdom of God forever. And now there's no Davidic king on the throne and there won't be again. Now they're taken out of the land. God promised Abraham that he would bless them and give them a land that would be flowing with milk and honey. And now it's desolate and the people are captive in Babylon. And if you want to get a a sense of how depressed Israel are when they're captive in Babylon, Psalm 137 sings these words, By the rivers of Babylon we wept when we remembered Zion. Now you might be old enough to remember Boney M making that a a, a pop single Um, but it's one of the psalms and it's there they are on the rivers of Babylon thinking we've got no home to go back to. If you want to get a sense of, of what's going on here for God's people is they have been taken out and they're in a refugee camp and they look back and their whole nation has been destroyed. And they would be asking the question, where is God in this? What's going on? And then, of course, they're taken captive into this new culture. And the temptation might be to think that God has abandoned them. But in this passage, I want to show you that God has not abandoned them. Three times in this passage, there is a very strong statement that God is the one who has given them these circumstances. Uh, Look at them all. First of all, in verse 2, And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, as God said that he would. See, there's a theological reason why Judah are now captive in Babylon. And the reason is that God kept saying to them, If you turn against me and follow other gods, I will remove you from your land and destroy you and take you captive to a foreign nation. God said he'd do it. And he has. So God has delivered them into the hands of the Babylonians. It's not just that Babylon was the ancient Near Eastern superpower, though they were. It was that God let it happen. See, if it was only a matter of military might, how on earth did this little tribe of Jacob's sons ever get into the Promised Land? Well, because God gave it to them. And now, he's given them over to the Babylonians. second time it gets mentioned is down in verse 9. Now, God had caused the official to show favour and compassion to Daniel. It's literally the same word in each of these three. God gave um, the favour and compassion to Daniel from the official. It's not just that Daniel is a particularly likeable guy. It's not just that he's really quite impressive or that he's got a sweet tongue and he can manipulate his way. It's that God has chosen this to happen. And then down in verse 17, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. See, far from God abandoning his people, even though he's bringing judgment on the nation, he is working in and through these circumstances. And he's going to work particularly through this man Daniel and his three friends. And we'll see them featuring again and again through this book. But the last indication in this chapter that I highlight, that God is in control, is the last verse. Look at verse 21. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now. In the first verse, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and seized it. That's 605 BC. In the last verse, 21, the first year of King Cyrus, that's 539 BC. 66 years. Daniel's there as a young man at the start. Daniel is there as a young man in the first year of the reign of King Cyrus. Who was King Cyrus? He was the king of Persia. You see, there was a time when the Assyrians dominated, there was a time when the Egyptians dominated, and now there's the time when the Babylonians dominated. It doesn't go on forever. God caused another empire, the Persians, to rise up and overthrow the Babylonians and to release the people of Judah. And Daniel's there through the whole lot. So the implications of this, the the nation, the empire of Babylon will rise and fall, but God preserves Daniel through the whole thing. You'll get various kings of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, um, a whole bunch of others, and yet Daniel remains in place. See, God is at work through this. God has not abandoned them. 66 years, Daniel remains faithful to God. He survives and Babylon doesn't. And one of the big themes that we're going to explore through this book of Daniel and in many visions and dreams that are really kind of weird and wonderful, the big theme that keeps coming through is the kingdom of God rules over the kingdoms of this world. And it's seen sometimes in the weakest of people which is not really surprising is it when you get to Jesus the crucified one being the king who will reign over all kingdoms for all time well let's pick on a couple of things here in this first chapter I want to talk about where we see Daniel and his friends conforming and where they're not conforming the places where they're conforming first of all with names the chief official, verse 7, gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. So here they're given new names. We also see them willing to conform when it comes to their learning. Uh, down in verse 4, uh, these were young men without physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well informed quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the of the Babylonians. Now, we, we see the impact of their learning when you get down to the bottom. say verse 17 to these young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. And then the king in verse 19 talked with them. And he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. So they entered his service. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. So the, the two areas we see addressed here in this chapter where they're willing to conform are to have their names changed and to learn from the literature and the teaching of the Babylonians. Now that might not seem like a big deal, but it is. It's actually a really vexed issue. Because the thing about the names is that their names, Daniel and his friends, are linked to the God of Israel. In fact, a couple of them like Daniel and Mishael, have the name of God in their name, El, as in Elohim. And so they are being being given names that deny the God of Israel and are caught up with the gods of the Babylonians. From Daniel to Belshazzar is to go from the true God to a foreign god in the way that you're identified. And yet they choose to go with that. The second thing is that the learning, well, it's thoroughly pagan learning that they're involved in. Now, this this isn't the product of 300 years of post-Reformation educational influence in our schooling system. This is Babylonian, theology shaping Babylonian education. And as we read on, we'll see that there are enchanters, magicians, astrologers. You see, they're, they're getting a thoroughly pagan education, and yet they go with that. Now, What do we make of that? Well, I think we need to recognise a couple of things here. See, for Daniel and his three friends, their identity is not in their name, but in their relationship with the one true God. And that never changes. Call them what you like. They will remain faithful to the God after whom they were named. Secondly, the pagan learning is good to understand. It's actually a helpful thing to know that the way that people around you think. It's it's not a bad thing to dabble with philosophy, to read up on history, to study some sociology, to get a bit of psychology, to understand how people around us think, to see what makes people tick, to hear what people value, whether we're talking about formal education, and the books or whether we're talking about popular education and what comes through the media and the TV and movies and the internet and podcasts and blogs. It's not a bad idea. There are some who would say it's a good idea to keep one eye in the mirror looking at ourselves and another eye on the newspaper looking at our world fundamentally informed in both cases by another eye, I don't know where you get it from, looking at the Scriptures so that we understand ourselves and our world and how people think and what people value and we're able to weigh that up against what the Word of God says. And I take it that that's implicit in what's going on here. That Daniel and his friends aren't being taken in by the pagan teaching but they're understanding the people around about them and God is giving them, notice verse 17, knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. You see, there is a place for going with the flow, but there's also the importance of standing up and being counted. And the big issue here, where these four men go against the flow, where they are willing to stand out, where they will not compromise, where they will demonstrate their difference, is in the area of food. Now, first of all, verse eight, notice that Daniel resolves not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. That word resolve, I think, is important. This is not just a a knee-jerk reaction. This is not uh, a a whim that he has. He's, He's not overwhelmed either by his circumstances thinking, Um, I've just got to react at this point. No, it's a conscious decision. Secondly, it's a decision that's made with respect. Verse 8, he asks the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. And later he'll, he'll give them a test that the official can apply, just test us out on veggies for 10 days. There's a respect here in his unwillingness To accept the conditions that are laid down by the king, he's resolving and he's respectful. But he won't eat the king's food. Now why is this? Let me give you three popular suggestions to this. First of all, because vegetarianism is far more healthy and he's committed to being a vegetarian. I don't think that's the case. Um, Secondly, that the Levitical laws prohibit from eating certain uh, meats and so on? Well, it could be that, but unlikely, because it it doesn't tell us what sort of meat it is. It could be any sort of meat here, and the Levitical laws don't prohibit the drinking of wine. Or, perhaps, it could be that all the food in, uh, in the king's table had been offered to foreign gods. So, like you read in 1 Corinthians, not to um, eat the meat that's uh, been defiled in the temple. It could be that. Um, But then, what about other food? Wouldn't that have been offered to gods as well? Uh, It wouldn't have just been the food from the king's table. So, how do we work this through? Well, I think that the key here is the phrase that gets mentioned in verse 5 and in verse 8. And that is that this is food from the king's table. It is royal food. And from what we know of the ancient Near East, and it comes up actually later on in Daniel in chapter 11 and verse 26, to eat food from the king's table is a statement of loyalty to the king. And I wonder whether what's actually going on here is that Daniel doesn't want to owe Nebuchadnezzar anything. You now there's no such thing as a free lunch or a free meal from the king's table. Once you start eating from the king's table, it's very hard then to take a stand against the king. I think perhaps it's a deeper issue for Daniel, that is he's making a choice, a conscious decision to go without something that would express loyalty to the king, and to trust in his loyalty to God, that that won't be a problem. And God honours that. God actually makes him look healthier. All of them looked healthier and better nourished. The interesting thing is the original language probably indicates that they look fatter. Um, So in our culture, we might be thinking, oh, they're obviously just having vegetables, so they look leaner and meaner. But no, they're actually looking more nourished. They're looking rounder. They're looking fatter. Um, And that's just from vegetables. It's it's not a, a simple dietary equation. Contra any books that might be called the Daniel Plan or anything like that. If there are any. But this is a specifically Christian response. That is, he's a man who's putting his trust in God. And it's a conscious decision to go and to put God first. Now friends, how do we decide when we're not going to go with the flow, but we're going to make a resolution to go against the flow so as to put God first? I think it's a good challenge for us. There are some simple things, aren't there? If our employer is encouraging us to fudge the figures, no, we need to express loyalty to God. That will mean to tell the truth. Uh, if we are being tested in areas of of honesty or being pushed into things that are manipulative or corrupt, then we need to be resolving not to go that way, but to show loyalty to God. And there's all sorts of areas of life, sex, money, power, even comfort. If we're being pushed to live lives that are fundamentally about our own personal comfort, Rather than to put God first, then we need to change. But I want to come back to this. What do we take from Daniel chapter 1? Well, I think there's a couple of lessons about God, first of all. Lessons that we'll be seeing again and again through Daniel. First of all, that God is the God over history. This is the God over all nations. And I know that there's a pressure to doubt that God is in control when we're overwhelmed. I've never spoken with my father or, it's too late now to speak with my grandparents about this, but I wonder whether there was pressure on Christians during the Second World War to just doubt the presence or the favour of God. I wonder whether things in Yemen or things in Myanmar, are causing people to question whether God has just lost it. Whether there is a God, and if there is a God, whether he's favourable. You see, there are all sorts of temptations to be overwhelmed by the situation that we're in. And we are reminded in this chapter that God is the God over history. We're also reminded in this chapter that there's often a seduction to turn away from God to other things. Oh, if I'm not so clearly Christian, then maybe I'll fit in better. Maybe I'll get ahead in my job. Maybe I'll do better at school. Maybe I'll be more successful. Maybe people will think I'm one of the cool kids. Maybe I'll have a better outcome. But friends, God is God and he's God over history, but he's not just the big sovereign God, he's He's also the God of the small stuff. He's in control, yes, but he cares deeply as well. And that's so important to know, isn't it? Like, it's one thing to know that God is powerful, but you need to know that God is not only all powerful, but that he loves and cares and is gracious and compassionate to individual people in the midst of his sovereign control see we we may be able to give lip service to the fact that god is in control over the nation of china and and russia and the us and indonesia and and all the other however many countries there are in the world but do we believe that god cares about individuals and what happens to them daniel shows us he does god cares about the small stuff so He's ruling over a world that is absolutely troubled by COVID. Um, God is ruling over the tensions of of USA-China politics. God is ruling over lockdowns and vaccine rollouts and international politics and state squabbles. God's ruling over all of that. But God cares about the people in those situations. God loves people in those situations. And he calls us to remember that. Friends, this is a chapter that encourages us deeply to resolve to put God first. To be people who acknowledge that God is number one in our life. And I want to just put a diagnostic question to you to think about today. What is it in your life that shows that you do put God first? What is it that's noticeably different? Where do you stand out from those around about you? Where would there be reason for people to ask about that difference? Where's it come from? What motivates it? what does that mean to you? Where do you put God first? And what will you resolve to do, so as not to be defiled, but to honour God? I was encouraged by Greg last Sunday when he he talked about the idea of a focused Friday. don't know if you remember that. Um, Someday being set aside to specifically remember the gospel and God's goodness to us. Now that could be done in a variety of ways. It could be done by giving up something. Choosing to have a day of fasting. Fasting from food perhaps, fasting from social media perhaps, from alcohol perhaps or from surfing. A day when I will choose to do something like eat only vegetables to remind me that God is number one. Not that there's anything right or wrong with giving up the meat, giving up the vegetables. That's a thought, isn't it? I could fast from vegetables. (laughs) And here's a thought. This is just a seed of a thought bubble for some of you. Could you give up a day a week, setting it aside from normal work, going without the income perhaps that comes from that day, just to find ways of serving the gospel? Because. God's in control of everything and he loves people deeply.